Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Perth Toll, founder of the Life and Liberty Indexes. Perth explains how and why freedom in various emerging market countries can be an important driver of returns for investors, and how she measures this in the index she's developed, which is utilized in an actual exchange-traded fund. Here in the U.S., we are free as individuals, but that's not the case around the world, and Perth's Life and Liberty Indexes try and reward those emerging countries where freedom is high and improving. Please enjoy this discussion with Perth Toll. Hi, Perth. How are you? Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Last time I think um, we saw each other, we were at an Inside ETF conference. Um, You were just uh, in the process of getting the um, sort of index formalized and um, getting things off the ground. And I know that was was an exciting time for for folks in the ETF space because there was a lot of innovation. And um, it was a good sort of just uh, get together with a bunch of FinTwit people. Um, going out to dinner and talking, investing and talking strategies and stuff. So hopefully we can get back to those times in the future once we sort of start reopening here. Yeah, I hope so. I really miss um, those dinners where, you know, it's previously when I went to these conferences, it was like all work, work, work and, you know, just focused on that. And next time when I go to a conference, whenever that will be, I will be more focused on the fun parts of it <laughs> because that's what I miss. Absolutely. We're going to talk a lot about the um, Life and Liberty Index um, that you've developed today. But before we do, I wanted to just kind of ask you about your background and some of your perspectives, because I think it plays into this um, sort of what you've developed here um, to a large extent. Um, so the first question I wanted to ask you was about your experience in growing up in China and how some of those experiences and maybe that formative time in your life you know, helped later on in your life lead you to create and think about the development of the Life and Liberty Index? Yeah, no, that definitely played a huge factor in it. Um, I I did grow up in both China and the U.S. I was born in Beijing and I lived there until I was about nine years old. And then I lived in the U.S. going back and forth. Um, And kind of after college, I went and lived in Hong Kong. And when I was there, I traveled to the mainland and, and Shanghai and Beijing and saw the difference that freedom made in my life and also in the in the markets in these countries. I also saw the difference between the U.S. market versus the Hong Kong market versus China's mainland market at the time. Um, and it was a time when China was opening up a lot, but I still saw um, some things that shocked me as someone who grew up in mostly a free uh, society um, in my formative years. And, um, you know, for example, I had a friend who we called Maggie. She was the same as me in every single way. I was about 23 at the time and she was the exact same age. Um, and she had no, you know, existence on paper. She had no birth certificate, no school records, no hospital records, no social security. Um, so I, you know, realized, Hey, that could have been me. And, And that was due to the one child policy. Her parents registered her brother for all these things, for existence, basically, for school and things. Um, and, and, and she was exactly the same as me in every way. And so being part of that one-child generation, 
Um, I saw how that policy, as just one of many things, changed the entire culture of my generation. And you know, now it's a two-child policy, but no one was really having two children because our culture changed. And um, so, you know, there's also 30 million missing women in China as a result of this policy due to official Chinese think tank estimates. So that's something that I realized, hey, you know, policies have a huge impact on the growth of a society and a market. And, you know, the demographics in China are now the worst in the world. And that's attributable to this policy and some other things as well. Um, and that's very hard to recover from. And so um, what we're doing is kind of a, a more of a bet on the freer markets, and especially in emerging markets, where you see such a huge discrepancy between freedom levels um, in countries, and that's only getting wider. Um, we're, we're placing a bet on the, on the ones that have the conditions in place on the ground for wealth creation and growth in the long run. So, you know, the freer markets do tend to grow more sustainably, recover faster from drawdowns, which we saw last year, um, and they tend to use their capital and labor more efficiently and have less capital flight and capital destruction, kind of like you see with, for example, the one-child policy. So, uh, so that's kind of what uh, the, the original inspiration was for what we do. And then, you know, after I came back to the States, I worked at Fidelity for 10 years as a financial advisor and also had clients who felt the same way, clients from Russia and China and Saudi Arabia. And I actually had a Russian client tell me, I don't want to invest in Russia because that's like funding terrorism. His words, not mine. So, um, so and we see what's happening right now in Russia and with Navalny and, um, you know, can see can see why he's getting where he's getting that. So, um, so that's kind of the the background of of um, how my life experiences contributed to um, the strategy. Yeah, you know, one of the things is I, I think most Americans obviously don't have any really great concept of what it's like to live in a country like China and have to deal with some of those you know, things that you mentioned. You know, I guess it's the two child law now or whatever. And I'm not even that familiar with all the different the the the, the the major differences in the amount of freedom that you have as individuals. But I wonder, since you've kind of, you've seen it, I mean, what other, you know, maybe just what other things sort of jump out at you in terms of the, the difference in individualized freedom between, you know, what we have here in our country and in China. Like before we started the podcast, we started talking about Jack Ma a little bit and how, you know, they're basically taking control of a company that he's built. One of the, could have been one of the most valuable companies in the world, but now the Chinese government is kind of coming in and, um, you know, taking control or partial control of that. So I don't know, are there any other like freedoms that as, as an individual like really stand out that you say, this is just crazy, like the difference in philosophy here? Yeah, I think uh, Jack Ma is a good example of, you know, when you become a very successful entrepreneur in China, you probably didn't do it on your own. You probably had some government help um, you probably were in an industry or uh, a company that was favored by the government because in a, an unfree market like that, um, the government does have a lot of say in private markets. It does have a lot of control over every single company. Um, in China, it is, you know, by law, every company has a Communist Party cell member uh, or a com Communist Party cell, not member, in that, in that company. And even before that was you know, the widespread practice, every company had a public relations or government relations department. Um, I remember when I was in Hong Kong going to uh, visit. So 
um, you guys are familiar with SMIC, which is the Taiwan Semiconductor, or TSMC, sorry, which is Taiwan Semiconductor Company in, in Taiwan. A lot of the people came out of that company and went and started um, SMIC, which is kind of the Chinese competitor to TSMC now, but not really a competitor because they're like five years behind on their technologies. But at the time when I was in Hong Kong is when that company first started um, in Shanghai, um, SMIC, SMIC. And they were, they're actually um, recruiting me to work for them. And I went and, and talked with them and met with a lot of the, um, the business development guys and also the government relations or PR department. And, um, you know, I saw that this was a very important piece of any company. And, uh, you know, I didn't end up going to work there. Um, we, we knew the founder um, from our time in the States because he was an expat from Texas. Um, and I had family that worked for him at the time. And now that, and, and all the people, interesting story about that is that I, I was told by my, um, the people that I met with who were, you know, young people, mostly from the States at the time, um, mostly my age, who told me, hey, don't come here for the IPO because the IPO was about to happen, the first one. Um, come here because you're called to be here. And so these are kids that were literally feeling like they were called to be there, making a difference in China and making it a better place and basically helping the country. Um, they're there out of a, with, you know, all good intentions. And now that company um, had the IPO, it was sued by TSMC, um, TSMC won the lawsuit for, um, for, for, for IP protections and things like that. And um, their price went down and they ended up, I believe, um, now listing on the starboard. So they had a second IPO. And the second IPO, anytime you list on the starboard, it's very well supported by the government. And so, you, so their, their stock price did pop on that second IPO. Um, but now the company is owned by basically people the, the government has put in place. So you take a company that literally people are coming from the United States to start to make um, Shanghai a better place to help the community and to, and to create innovation. And years after, it is owned by basically state actors um, and, and producing uh, parts for Huawei. So, um, so that's kind of my, you know, a personal story of what could happen when you try to start a company in China. Um, I have heard from other entrepreneurs that, hey, as long as you stay, like, not in the first tier, but in the second or below tiers, you shouldn't be a target. But that, yeah, yeah that's a huge difference in um, kind of the business culture over there versus here is here, like we have Jeff Bezos or Steve Jobs, and these are guys that are venerated and celebrated and to be for being entrepreneurs, even um, you know, Elon Musk, right? Crazy as he is, he is somewhat celebrated. And in China, if you're one of those guys, you're, you're a target. You have a big target on your back and you're just like super scared. And you can see uh, right now, all of the tech entrepreneurs are silent right now. And that's not an accident because this is a, a Chinese technology companies have been well supported by the government in recent past. And that's why they've been able to be so successful. And now they're seeing that pendulum swinging the other way. So they're all going to be silent about it and no one's going to move um, as a result of that. And so, so yeah, there is a, definitely a different culture there that doesn't necessarily um, incentivize innovation or 
um, it kind of incentivizes, that's like a system that more, more so incentivizes mediocrity. So you don't want to be like the top, you want to be in the middle and keep attention from yourself. That doesn't incentivize great innovation. So that's kind of one of the, the reasons why, why we prefer to invest in the freer markets where innovation actually is incentivized and celebrated versus being dangerous. Um, before we talk about your uh, your freedom index a little bit more, I want to just take a step up and talk about the difference between an emerging and a developed market. I mean, I probably should know the exact definition, and I pretty you know it's one of those things where maybe you know it when you see it. But I was wondering, what what are the actual criteria that separates an emerging market from a developed market? Yeah. So since we're creating an investment product, you know, uh, in this space, we don't determine that. We you know, uh, MSCI and FTSE determines that. It's not even, you know, World Bank or IMF doesn't even, however they, they classify countries doesn't even matter to us. It's, we just have to use what's standard so, so it's easier for um, our clients to put it into their portfolios. So unfortunately, I, I don't know the specifics there either. So yeah, those, those companies are actually figuring that out themselves. They're, they're making that determination. Yeah, and so, you know, there, we do hear the argument that, hey, China should actually not be an emerging market. It's like the second largest market in the world. So, and I would agree with that. Taiwan, South Korea, similar. Um, but that's the way that they're classified right now uh, by MSCI. And so we use that as a standard. Um, I have considered adding some to like our, our own emerging markets universe, like adding some of the larger, very free frontier markets, so like Estonia, but um, that's not something I've done yet. Um, but I have, I have considered that in the past. I was wondering at a high level if you could just explain the, the concept of freedom weighting. So if I, you know, there's a lot of traditional emerging market ETFs out there. How would a, you know, if your index look different than sort of a traditional emerging market index? Yeah, so traditional emerging markets indexes out there are typically very heavily weighted in some of these autocracies. Um, or countries that are, don't have a lot of protections for personal and economic freedoms. So, um, and that's, that's because of the country classifications and market capitalization weighting, which is the standard weighting method. Um, so with that type of weighting, you get a higher um, allocation to China. So you have about 38% to China right now. Um, MSCI, um, I believe, is either completed or almost in completion of their um, additional uh, A shares um, inclusions, so which which quadruple their A shares from five percent to twenty percent um, as a target in the index, and uh, that brought their China allocation up to like forty three percent by August twenty twenty. Now that percent has come down since then because of relative performance, but um, currently it's about thirty eight percent in that index. So that's one country alone. China has 38% of most emerging markets indexes. In addition, you have allocations to Russia, to Saudi Arabia, which was added in 2018. So, and those are not small allocations. Those are all top 10. So you have, you know, more than 40% approaching 50% in some of these highly unfree markets with very questionable um, human rights practices. Um, and then just, you know, not a lot of freedom to innovate. So um, that's kind of the problem we're looking to solve. And we do that by freedom weighting. So freedom weighting is where you give the freer countries a higher weights, less free countries, lower weights. Um, and the, the worst offenders are 
naturally excluded as a result of the freedom waiting. And so we have actually no allocation to China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Turkey, or any of these very unfree markets. And that's just a natural result of the freedom waiting. We don't, we're not arbitrarily excluding any countries. Um, and then we have higher ways to countries like Taiwan, South Korea, and Chile. So those are very free emerging markets. Um, Chile being one that doesn't get a lot of attention in the other um, indexes because it's a smaller market. But we do have, you know, we do have market size screens as well. So it does meet our minimums for inclusion as far as market size and liquidity. Um, it's just smaller than the other other EMs. So um, so that's that's kind of what we're trying to capture is these markets that kind of are the you know, ground zero for growth in the next decade because they have that conditions and those conditions in place, um, that foundation of freedom um, for growth in the long run. Since um, I'm a quant nerd myself, um, I really like the idea of taking something like freedom, which is, you know, it would seem on the surface to be very difficult to quantify, but you've actually developed a really detailed system to quantify the concept. I'm wondering if you could just talk about the actual inputs that go into it and how you score companies. Yeah, that's a great question. So freedom is a very nebulous concept. And um, that was our first concern in, in a, a product like this is like, how do we make sure that our subjective opinion doesn't factor into this? Um, so especially with indexing, you need quantitative metrics. And when I first thought of this in the very beginning, uh, there weren't any like composite quantitative metrics that factored in both personal and economic freedoms. Um, so we did develop our own at that time, but by the time that we ended up launching the index, we had found a, a quantitative um, scoring system that encompasses 76 variables on both personal and economic freedom. So this is done by the Cato Institute, the Fraser Institute, and the Friedrich Nauman Foundation for Freedom. Um, so they look at 76 different third-party variables and score 162 countries, and we just use the emerging markets country set um, universe on that. Um, so these guys are, are data providers that I used to use just for economic freedom uh, because they had quantified that much earlier on, uh, which is, that's like a 30-year-old or so um, data set. Um, and when I, when I went to score countries, you know, when I first started this company and start, started scoring countries, I, I saw that they had something called Human Freedom Index and Dataset on their on the website. And so I called my contact there, Fred. And so I was like, hey, Fred, what is this? And we compared our two methods. So I had a method that I had a provisional patent on. They had this one. And they almost matched up exactly. Like, we used the same um, type of methodology. Um, and I had, like, a, 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 an ordinal scale system, So which is like, okay, so if, if there's... So th there's a lot of qualitative reports on human freedom and things like journalist killings and extrajudicial uh, like kidnappings and disappearances and torture and stuff like that. So there's a lot, you know, and you have to read those reports, but it doesn't give you a score. So what I did is I had an ordinal scale system. So like if I, if I saw, if, if a country had between zero to five journalist killings in one year, then they get a score of five. If they had between five to 10, then they get a score of four, you know, and so on and so forth. So they, they use the same type of system to quantify qualified variables. And so I said, hey, since our systems are almost similar, you know, identical, can I just use yours for what I do? And um, that would save me literally four months out of the year of, of, you know, quantifying these types of metrics. And they were like, yeah, you can. So, so basically, you know, these are guys that I've worked with for a long time. However, they, they do work completely independently from me and I work completely independently from them. So I don't 
influence the scores in any way. I, I, there's no way I, there's no way they could even influence the scores in any way. So because they're using third party metrics, and there is a, a think tank uh, network of about 100 you know think tanks around the world um, in this network that we that we work with um, to get to get uh, on the ground types of information for these types of metrics. Perth, do you see a lot of movement between sort of the rankings of these countries? Like once you, so you're, you're, are you, is the data like a continuous feed at the country freedom of those metrics that you're pulling? Is it like you go to rebalance the index, you pull the data points, or maybe it's a continuous feed that you're getting. I'm not sure. And then you re I'm sort of just trying to articulate how I would envision this. You're going to tell me how you do it, but um, and then do you see movement in there or is it pretty consistent over time, would you say? So the, I would say there, there is movement, um, but it is also pretty consistent. So, so just to give you an example, um, in 2017, um, Poland was the top country holding. And as we know, Poland has had a lot of issues since then as far as their judicial independence and some of these other freedoms. Um, so what happened was, you know, in, in 2016 or 15 or somewhere within that range, I was in a freedom meeting with some of these global think tank partners. And the guy from Poland told me, hey, um, we're about to elect a kind of a super right wing, like extremist almost type of government. And you're going to see some of these freedoms eroding and they're going to have constitutional majority. Uh, but that won't show up in the markets for a couple of years. And it happened just as he said. So Poland went from number one holding in, in 2017 to, and I think I think this this um, government was elected in 2016 or so. But they 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 were number one still in 2017, and then they dropped to number four um, in 2018, and they stayed there since. Um, and it, it is just as he said that Poland was the top performing country in 2017, and um, so we were happy to have them in that index at that time. Um, but they they dropped since then, and they've never been the top performer again um, as of as of now. So um, that that's one example. Um, and then some years, so that was before we had the the ETF based on the index. Um, since the ETF was launched in 2019, um, we've had some years like the 2020 rebalance where no countries were added or dropped. So the countries basically went back to their target weights and the securities went back to their target weights. Um, and then this year, 2021 rebalance, we had two countries that were added and two countries that were dropped and then just a lot of turnover. And so it was a, like the most intense rebalance that uh, <laughs> I've ever seen. Um, so, uh, so, so some years there is a lot of change. Now this year, what changed was the very smallest countries. Um, so we saw India, um, and uh, Thailand being dropped. They were the two um, smallest allocations. And we saw Brazil and Malaysia being added. And they were just on the cusp of inclusion before. Brazil um, was one that kind of surprised me because they you know, have very high homicide rates. And one of the reasons why they weren't in the, in the index quantitatively before is because of those homicide rates. Our data providers are the only ones that consider homicide as a freedom metric because they believe that if you can't walk down the street without getting shot at, then you're not really free. Um, so uh, that was a surprise to me. But it, 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 as it turns out, you know, looking deeper into it, their score didn't change. It's India's score that, that declined. Um, 
and so relatively, since it's relative scoring is a relative freedom kind of um, uh, index. So basically, the higher the the freedom levels relative to the peer to the, their peers is how we consider inclusion. So as long as you're more free than your peers, you get included. There is no 100% perfectly free country, and there's no 100% perfectly oppressive country. So it's all relative. Um, and you know, India had some issues last year with you know blacking out the internet in places that were going to have protests, um, repressing the Kashmir peoples, and so and some journalists media freedom issues. So, so it's, it was another country's score getting dropped that caused Brazil to, to become added into the index. Um, so, so that's the types of thing that can happen. It can be very high turnover in some years, and some years it's like very little change. Um, it's been our experience so far. What are some of the top scoring countries based on freedom today in the index? Like what are the top three? So Taiwan, South Korea, and Chile are the freest in the index today. Yeah. Um, so there was one other rule that I should probably discuss. So the, 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 we have a freedom decline momentum rule. So if a country declines too quickly on their freedom score in any given country, they are dropped out of the index, even if they're in there previously. So um, Turkey did trigger this rule in 2018. It's like a stop loss rule, <laughs> almost. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> freedom stop loss. And you've never, it wouldn't, it wouldn't really make sense. This, this can't be applied to like developed countries, can it, or can it? I mean, it can be, it can be really applied to any, any country, but I guess developed countries are more free. Yeah, exactly. So it can be applied, but it doesn't add a lot of value. So that's the reason why we started with only the emerging markets, because most of the developed markets, as you said, are already pretty free and pretty homogenous in their freedom levels. So it actually kind of makes sense to weight them in other ways, you know, whether it be smart beta or whether it be value or whether it be market cap, because those are places where, first of all, the data is largely available. It's, it's very transparent and it's reliable. Um, and you can use other data. And same with ESG, like ESG works better kids right now because the data is there and it's reliable and it's transparent and it's accountable because of free media. So if you have freedom of speech and freedom of media, that uh, all the data that's out there, whether it's ESG or other data is verifiable, it's accountable to the public and to the press. Um, in, the, in, the, in the emerging markets, that's not guaranteed. Um, half of the emerging markets are, have very few protections for personal and economic fr freedoms and very poor press freedoms. And so, you know, China could come out and say, hey, we're going to be the ESG leaders of the world. But there's no one that can verify that because there's no freedom of the of media. So, um, so, so it's hard to do kind of these strategies like ESG in, in emerging markets without considering freedom. Um, but yeah, like you said, in, in developed markets, there's not a lot of value add in something like a freedom weighted approach because those markets are already pretty free. And how do you, um, in, inside of the individual countries, you just use, you use market cap weighting? Okay. And what is the, uh, what is the sector breakdown of high freedom emerging market, uh, countries? You know, there's, there's this narrative that basically emerging market stocks are obviously a lot cheaper than the U S right now. And there's the narrative that basically a lot of that is just that they're in very, very different industries and they have a lot less technology and a lot more materials type stuff. Is, is that true about the sort of high freedom emerging market countries, or is that maybe not completely true? Uh, I would say it's not completely true because the, the freedom, um, the higher freedom countries do have a lot more, um, 
they're more diverse in their in their industries. So they're they're not all reliant on you know energy or materials. Uh, you know, you see companies like Chile that are still pretty reliant on copper and things like that. Um, but there's companies like Taiwan and South Korea, which are very, you know, their tech industries are, are very um, robust. And, um, you know, you see now with the chip shortage, these are the guys coming in to kind of solve that for the world, hopefully. <laughs> we'll see. But, uh, but yeah, no, the, I do see a high, there's a higher weighting towards technology companies with the, with the freer markets. And I think some like uh, like South Korea, for example, I think has a high technology rating, right? Because I believe Samsung is a pretty high percentage of the of the index. Is that right? Samsung, if you look at any South Korean index that's market cap weighted, will be like 25% of the index. Same thing with TSMC um, in Taiwan. That's why we put um, caps <laughs> on the security level of 8% at the time of rebalance. Otherwise, it would make up a huge percent of our index, these two companies alone. Um, and it's not a bet on two companies. It's a bet on the freer markets. So um, we do cap the securities at 8% at the time of rebalance, largely because of those two companies. Yeah, you know, a lot of people have been worried about the U.S. getting too over-concentrated in certain names. And you look at some of these other countries, uh, you know, like, like South Korea, and it's obviously a much more, you know, even extreme situation than what people think is going on here. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. What is, do you think there's a, so do you think people pay a valuation premium for high freedom? So if you look at high freedom emerging markets, uh, you know, countries versus low freedom emerging markets, you know, do you see a higher, higher valuations in there? Or do you think maybe this is something people are not paying more for from a valuation standpoint? No, they do actually. Um, so, so it's not a value strategy. The, the, there is a little bit of a, a of a valuation premium for these types of the, these companies in these in these countries, and I think that makes sense because there's a value premium for the United States as well, um, and that's because there is a premium to be had in in a country with rule of law, um, where you know that your business contracts are going to be honored or you have um, recourse, right? In a country where you don't have that. It's a little more wild west and, and you should pay more for that risk. So, so yeah, there is a little bit of, of a premium in these countries. I know, you, you know you're very close with, with Wes Gray and the guys at Alpha Architect. Um, using factors to select companies or is that not something you've <laughs> thought about? <laughs> Believe me, we have okay. talked about this. Um, in fact, my, my first, so, so the index that our you know, ETF is based on the FRDM index um, is actually a second iteration of my original idea. So the first one was one that had valuations and yield in it. And the feedback that I heard from people that I was trying to, you know, um, ask about investing in this is that, hey, freedom is your main innovation. And if I wanted a value emerging markets product, I could get that elsewhere. So just Focus on freedom. And so I literally thought that made a lot of sense and I, I stripped out everything except freedom. So now it's 100% freedom weighted basically. And the only thing we do on the security level is, um, you know, like I said, the ex state owned. Um, so, <clears throat> so of course, talking with Wes, he would, you know, add his own, you know, value metrics to it if he had the choice. Um, and, you know, we talk about, hey, um, if like, I think one time I, I was exposed to COVID and I was like, Hey, if I died, what are you going to do with the, you know, what are you gonna do with this? And he basically was like, we'll probably put like a value spin on it. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's how I know if, if I ever, if I'm gone and he puts a value spin, you know, that's what happened there. So, so yeah, that's, <laughs> he would definitely do that. Um, I would 
for this first product, and I'm open to doing that in the future, but um, for this first product, I wanted to isolate that freedom factor just because it's never been done before and give it a stay in the sun to see how, to see what happens and then how people respond to it. Yeah, I mean, I think, so, you know, a lot of times simpler is often better. I mean, your index is gonna look so different from what, you know, a emerging market index is gonna look like just with the freedom weightings. Like why complicate the message with some type of value composite on the companies? I mean, you know, let the freedom sort of bubble up to the top and keep the messaging simple. And I think that's that's probably been net net a very good positive thing for you for messaging and marketing and, and things like that. Yeah, it's, it's already different enough that um, without adding any, Further complications. It's a <laughs> different, different enough message. <laughs> you, I think you kind of hit on this, but I mean, what is when when we talk about sort of factors here like value and momentum, we sort of like to ask like why they work, and there's various reasons why or theories as to why you know certain styles of investing um, you know work over time. And so with freedom, and I think you kind of hit on it a little bit, but I mean, what is your what would you say are the core three things about why freedom lead freedom like this concept of freedom should lead to better performing countries and the stocks in those countries like how do you kind of boil that down in terms of sort of the core principles of what's driving that long-term outperformance using this freedom methodology I think it's good that you said long-term outperformance because we're not promising any, anything in the short-term, although our short-term performance does look great right now. Um, so the, the main overarching reason that I personally believe the freer markets will perform better in the long run is that I believe that people drive growth. So where people can be free um, is where there will be more growth. Um, but our research has shown basically that the freer markets typically have more sustainable growth. So their growth is real and it's sustainable versus something like debt driven um, GDP boost through um, construction of, of ghost cities. Right. So uh, so th it's a more sustainable uh, growth model. Um, it is is. Uh, recovers faster from drawdowns. So it basically, you know, has more flexibility to, to respond to market trends like we, we discussed. Um, and we saw that tested last year because we had a big drawdown, which we underperformed because China outperformed in the drawdown. Um, they had a lot of uh, interventions that helped with that. Um, and then in the, in the recovery, we outperformed both broad EM and ex-China EM. So it wasn't just China, that was the only component. We also outperformed EMESG. So in the recovery, the freer, emerging markets really shined. And we saw that going back in the index, live index history as well. So, um, so, so the recovery is a story in emerging markets, in the freer emerging markets that, that is really, um, has really played out and, and proven itself over the last year. Um, and then the last thing is they use their capital and labor more efficiently. So you don't have these, this, these state interventions that kind of, um, uh, get in the way of companies doing what's in the best interest of their customers and their shareholders, right? They, when you have to act in the interest of the state above all else, it's just not an efficient way to run a company. Um, and 
uh, not only state-owned enterprises, but also any enterprise in, in a country where the government has an outsized role. Um, you also see less capital flight and capital destruction as a result of this. So you see less people kind of fleeing those markets and coming to the more free, free markets. So, you know, capital likes to go where it's welcome and where it's well-treated, right? Walter Riston. Um, so, so, you know, that, that kind of brain drain from these countries can also uh, weigh on their growth in the long run. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I would think you, you would expect that all, all the things that come with being free would, would definitely lead to better returns over time. I mean, a lot of those things on the other side of the coin are, you know, can certainly be hindrances. Um, we just have a couple more before we want to wrap up. And I want to ask you, you wrote a really good piece um, that, I, that I was reading in preparation from this. And, you know, all of us tend to want to be, you know, in investing, we want to be like the benchmark. In, in life, we don't want to deviate too much. And you wrote this piece about the idea that you can't make a difference if you're not different. And I was wondering if maybe you could just talk about that a little bit and how it goes into to what you're building there. Sure. Yeah, no, that that was actually inspired by these kids that I met in a, in a coffee shop um, who who gave me the, the little piece of paper that said you can't you you can't make a difference if you're not different. They actually drew it out while they were in the coffee shop after we spoke. Um, so I talk about that in the story. Maybe you can can link it here. But um, so so I was looking at ESG and emerging markets um, because, you know, people always ask us, are you ESG? And I would say, yeah, we we are ESG, obviously, by, you know, inherently just because we're looking at freedom metrics, right? Personal and economic freedoms. Those are ESG you know, metrics that could, could go into, you know, social or governance. Um, but we didn't, we weren't designed to be that way. And the, the strategy stands on its own, whether or not um, it's ESG, um, because of all the things that I just mentioned. Um, but I was looking at ESG emerging markets uh, funds out there. And one of them, this is the biggest ESG emerging markets um, fund in the U.S. Um, their investment brief says, uh, we we, we, we seek to maximize ESG score while staying within 100 basis points of the benchmark. So they're, or they're um, in, in their tracking error. So, you know, translation, that means they, they're not gonna deviate more than 1% from their parent index, which is not an ESG index. So the ESG products out there are really trying to mirror the benchmarks. And that causes them to, to make no real difference for the investors. Um, and you look at, as a result of that, these ESG emerging markets products have also 40% in China, additional you know, 3% in Russia, Saudi Arabia, and so forth. Um, and most ESG investors would not be, you know, they, they would not like something like that because of these very, um, poor human rights practices in these countries. So, you know, what I was saying in the article is basically you have to be different to make a difference. If you want to say you're ESG, if you want to say, you know, you're making a difference in the world, then actually you have to be different. Um, without being different, um, especially, you know, for us in, in the investment world, we can't really make that difference. But it's so hard. It's so hard in the investment world because you people want to mirror benchmarks. And as you guys know, institutions especially, um, have career risk associated with deviating from these benchmarks. And I think Kathy Woods said something similar to this, where she was like, people worship benchmarks. It's like, you know, almost idolatry. And I think she used those words. And I think that's true. You know, what her look at her strategies, right? She doesn't care about benchmarks. It literally can go anywhere, right? So, you know, even, you know, our strategy even, okay, we're staying within emerging markets. She's not even doing that. She's just, we'll go anywhere. Um, 
And I think that may be the future of um, investing, and, and especially with the growth of retail, right? The you know rise of retail. Um, retail investors don't don't care so much about benchmarks. <laughs> you know, they just care about what is actually what am I actually investing in? They look around in the world like what's going on? Okay, people are playing video games. I'm going to invest in video games or whatever. So I mean, literally, they don't care about they don't know or care like what's classified as developed or emerging. I get so many questions like, hey, what's going to happen to Hong Kong in your index? I'm like, Hong Kong is actually not in our index. It's a developed market, right? So they don't care about that. Um, so so yeah, I think. Very important to you know, kind of let go of some of our past constraints that we put on ourselves as investment professionals and just do what makes sense. Yeah, you know, as, since we run, you know, focused factor funds ourselves, we, we certainly run into this a lot too. You know, every, everybody wants to be like the benchmark. And in a lot of ways, you know, when you're deviating from the benchmark, it's, it's worse for investors than when you're actually losing them money. You know, they, they just don't like when their friends are making money and they're not. So hopefully you're right. And hopefully we're headed towards a world where that's, you know, less important. Um, just before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you one last question. And we, you know, we started our own ETF and we, we had the brilliant idea of starting a deep value uh, small cap ETF in 2014 because we thought it was a great time to invest in small cap value. Um, that, obvi that obviously didn't work out for us. But as, as part of that, we understood how difficult it is and how much competition there is out there in terms of trying to build an ETF from scratch, especially as a small issuer. And I'm wondering, you've been able to do that successfully where we weren't. And I'm wondering maybe if you could talk a little bit about that process and maybe some of the lessons you've learned on the way as you've been building this up. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's extremely hard. I mean, as you know, um, this is a, an industry where in ETFs specifically as a slice of the financial services industry um, is one where scale is so crucial, right? So that's why, you know, iShares and Vanguard and SSGA dominate the market because they have that scale. Um, and for, for us independent issuers, it's much harder because there's just so much upfront cost um, before you hit that scale. Um, but I don't know any other product that's so good for investors and so beneficial for investors, you know, especially in emerging markets where we actually go out and get accounts open at each of these emerging markets so that our investors can have access to stocks listed on the exchanges in the, in the local markets. Um, there's no way that most clients can do that on their own. And, um, and that co it costs money for us to do it for them. Um, but that's something that ETFs give to investors that I think is so beneficial. Um, in addition to all of the other benefits like low cost transparency and tax efficiency, most of all. Um, so, you know, it's one of those products that is it's just like great for investors and so hard for issuers because, you know, we're putting up that cost. Um, up front to, to get them there. And it, it's, uh, it's just extremely hard. And, and I think a lot of things, like you mentioned, like market performance, we can't control, but goes into how a product grows, especially in the beginning. Um, and there's just so many, I think so many variables that you can, can't control, but also it's, it's, it's just a very risky business. It's, I think it's probably a lower survival rate than restaurants in Dallas, which I don't know if you know about restaurants in Dallas, but there's more, there's more restaurants in Dallas per capita than New York City. So <laughs> the survival rate is not good. And I think it's, it's something worse than even that in the ETF world. But I would say, you know, the important thing is, did you, you know, uh, do business in a way that, that you were proud of? You know, because right now we're seeing some, some really silly things happening in, in financial services and in, 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 the, in the markets and in, um, in 
uh, ETFs as well. There are people doing silly things to promote their own um, strategies, right? So, but did, but did you, you know, if you ran it in a way that, that you were proud of and the market went against you, hey, you know what happens. So <laughs> the important thing is you, you took the challenge, you got in the ring, right? That's, did you read, I don't know if you guys read Matthew McConaughey's new book, uh, Green Lights, or maybe his only book, I don't know. Uh, but he, he talks about that where he's like, you know, the, you win when you accept the challenge. It's not even about win or lose. It's just, you, you, did, you, did you accept the challenge? So I think you guys can be proud of what you accomplished there. I mean, you still have the strategy running um, as um, SMAs, right? So um, just because it's not in a certain wrapper doesn't mean it didn't work. It's just for that time period in that particular wrapper, it's extremely expensive to keep up and sometimes doesn't make business sense. So. Um, so yeah, no, I think I think you guys should be very proud of what you what you did there, and also um, for others who are considering the ETF world, um, it's just it's extremely challenging. I'm not gonna lie, you know. So um, it's great for investors. I don't know of anything any vehicle that is better for investors, um, but for the, the the other side, for us issuers, um, you do have to have a certain scale before you become a for-profit organization. <laughs> thanks thanks so much for that I, I do have Matthew McConaughey's new book and that's you're exactly right it's about kind of getting in the ring and sometimes falling sometimes getting up and dusting yourself off and just having a good you know positive optimistic attitude about you know what you're doing and I think when we had our ETF that is the way we looked at it um and kind of relating back to you I think you know what you've done here is really impressive and I think more and more investors are seeking out investment strategies that align with them personally and philosophically. And I don't know, you know, anybody that I know that doesn't sort of strongly believe in freedom and you're giving investors exposure to emerging market, you know, countries and companies in those emerging markets that have higher degrees of freedom. And I think for investors, what that will actually hopefully translate into is a stronger belief in your strategy, in your methodology, which by the way is systematic and disciplined. And I think what that will lead to is, you know, better investor returns out of, you know, those people that are actually following the uh, index and investing in the ETF that is being powered by the index. So we just want to wish you um, all the best success. We really like the strategy. And um, thank you for spending the time and coming on with us today. If you'd like to learn more about Perth Toll and the Freedom Indexes, you can go to www.lifeandlibertyindexes.com. You can also follow Perth on Twitter at, at Perth underscore Toll. That's P-E-R-T-H underscore T-O-L-L-E. Thanks so much. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.